Welcome to Yolitics, the home of cold beer and hot takes on Texas politics. Hey there, welcome to Yolitics. You guys are actually crashing the Yolitics Christmas party right now. I've taken Wheeler. Wait, this is our Christmas this party? This is it, man. This Settle is in. It. I used your I used your credit card at the bar over here. Oh, I hope you bought me a nice gift. We are at, uh, yeah, you're, you're buying the, uh, the the drinks here. We're at Westlake <laughs> Brewing Company. We, we've come here several times. This is a fun place. It is. In Deep Ellum, just east of the skyline in downtown Dallas. Now explain Ellum to people who are not from Dallas, though. It's how Elm is pronounced. Elm is pronounced, From yeah. Way back in the day. And it, Elm. It's, it's deep because this is so far out uh, on Elm Street. It's right in the shadows of downtown. Yeah, but I guess but, back in the day it was way far out. But Elm Street goes to like to the complete other side of, of right. downtown, too. Elm. And it's, yeah. You're it's supposed to say Elm. Deep Elm. Uh, so what are you having here at Westlake Brewing? I'm having the, I get the same thing everywhere I go. Yeah. Do you, do you get the same thing or do you, you, Not you don't everywhere. branch out? You don't branch out very of much. Of course I you? branch out. We were going to get into that in just a second. Oh, okay. Well, let's branch out in a second. I'm having the super dry. This is like a Japanese style ale. And for this being an American beer, man, they do a great job of imitating it. It's fantastic. Hmm. I was going to say super dry. That, that title fits you. <laughs> well played, well I'm ha- played. I'm having the porter, so I do branch out. What, what kind of, uh, there's, know, is there chocolate in there? You, you only have something. There's nothing coffee, there's nothing chocolate, there's nothing fruit. That is surprising about you. because I you told always, you I branch out. Yeah, you always get like a, a s'mores beer or something like that. Right, you know? I'm branching out just like a an elm tree does. May- <laughs> uh, yeah, so, you know, you got to try new things uh, from time to time, and here we are. Uh, by the way, uh, the last time we came here, uh, yeah. I ended up leaving. We recorded a podcast here with uh, Ed uh, Ed Levandera from right. CNN, uh, and we left here. And then I spent. You didn't pay? Oh no, no, I paid uh, because I I spent forty minutes waiting in a parking lot for somebody to come take the boot off my car. <laughs> Are you serious? <laughs> yes. So you didn't pay the the parking meter then? Oh, I I paid. It just I didn't pay long enough. Apparently, your questions were too long. I can't imagine how angry you were. This oh, is, see, imagine listener, here's it. the thing. Just imagine it. Wheeler comes off as this great all-American guy, you know, smiling all the time. Actually, I don't. <laughs> he has. <laughs> there's there's little room in here for anybody to go sideways on him at, at all. So no, it's a you know I, I'm usually at about 210 degrees, just right before boiling. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where you just see the little bubbles, but it's not quite rolling yet. And you put a boot on the car. Oh, and I bet that, that would set, set that you made a roll. Cody, Thank thanks, you. man. Appreciate it. Flat the flatbread just arrived, and it has jalapenos, man. Is you that mine? Some of this? Is that mine? Uh, no, it's mine. But you can have some because yeah. it's all paid for with my card today, anyway, right? <laughs> yeah, why not, man? Um, so you know, we're getting ready to close out a year, and and usually December is kind of one of these months, especially now that the midterms are over yeah, and all slower. of that. That it's kind of slower and sleepier, uh, but but not this year. The Supreme Court uh, is making a lot of news. Uh, a lot of people watching, you know, some of the cases that they're taking on, uh, including a biggie. Uh, and this involves, and we'll get into this, but it it has this this name that immediately makes your eyes glaze over right. and think, ah, I don't need to listen to that. It's the independent state legislature theory. <sighs> <laughs> It's not the first sorry, time you're, I you're put saying, you to sleep. You're, what were you saying again, Wheeler? <laughs> the independent state legislature theory. I so you, you ran across this this uh, news story and you're like, wow, what what is this? This is going on. You're right. like, we need to take a look at this. Right. And and we started looking into it. This is all around a case called Moore versus Harper, mm-hmm. and it was just heard this month by the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, and it's pretty fascinating because if you think about the ram the potential 
ramifications for this, right? Uh, it, it could be long lasting. And the ramifications are uh, all across the country, including, of course, here in Texas, even though this centers around a North Carolina case that's being held, uh, heard before the Supreme Court. And in fact, uh, Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton has filed one of these briefs, basically weighing in and saying, you know, I'm not necessarily in this fight uh, at the Supreme Court, but I would like to weigh in on a side. And he has weighed in on the side of saying the independent state legislature theory is a good thing because uh, courts uh, have overstepped their boundaries. And we think the legislature should have all the power in dealing with elections and that the courts in the state shouldn't have the ability to come in and second guess or check what the legislature is doing with regard to the administration of elections. Now, now this is about the extent of our legal knowledge right here. You, you just you went a little overboard on your I know. Legal I feel knowledge. like I went way out there. No, I mean, it sounds like you've been reading up and I'm impressed because you don't normally. Let's hope I got that right. Well, I think you did. But we go to uh, a legal scholar all the time who, uh, as you're stuffing your face there with that flatbread, man. I am. I, uh, I'm like three pieces in already. How'd that happen? I know, man. It's, it's rude to be eating in front of our guests here. <laughs> but we, we go to a legal scholar who can really help us understand this stuff. I hate using the cliche, break it down or, or deep dive, because that's not, that's not always, you know, factual. But this but guy. But he usually does. Yeah, yeah. But, He but, takes us pretty deep on these. But we're going to Austin and talking to Stephen Vladek. He is a faculty member at UT Austin down there, a legal scholar. He's frequently on cable news. People call him because he can make sense of this stuff and help us understand exactly what this means. Uh, he is a Charles Allen Wright chair in federal courts at the University of Texas in Austin and a great guy who always takes our call. Thanks for being here with us. Uh, you know, this is one of those things that we really wanted to talk to you about, I think, uh, because first of all, you hear this independent state legislature theory, and this is something that's being looked at by the Supreme Court, and that is not a sexy title. And it's like so many other things, I think, that a lot of uh, citizens of this country hear that phrase and they just think, oh, that's not something I need to pay <laughs> attention to. Is this something, though, Professor Vladek, that all of us should be paying very close attention to? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, I mean, just Next question, it, right? <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's, it, it's a good example of how we need a better name for it. So if you if you don't like independent state legislature theory, how about um, our state legislatures supreme over state supreme courts? Or is your state supreme court irrelevant theory? Um, mm -hmm. Right. Because that's effectively where this ends if you take it to its logical extreme. Um, and this so is based on a North Carolina case that they're considering right now at the Supreme Court. And basically uh, what happens is, you know, state legislatures, they draw the boundaries for districts and, you know, they can gerrymander. They can, you know, try to you know make it favorable for their party if they've got control. And basically what happened is in, in North Carolina, they drew the boundaries of the congressional maps. The state Supreme Court came in and went, no, that's uh, not going to work. That's uh, that's that's gerrymandered. And now North Carolina took this to the Supreme Court and said, hey, we as a legislature should have total power over this and it shouldn't be something that can be checked by the courts. Is that roughly correct? It is. And I just add one more piece of context, which is that the argument um, is based on two separate provisions of the federal constitution. So Article One, Section 4 of the U.S. Constitution um, gives to the legislature of the state the power to fix the time, place, and manner of congressional elections, so the House and the Senate. And then Article 2, Section 1 of the Constitution 
uh, gives to the legislature of the states the power to uh, choose the manner in which we choose our electors, basically to select the means by which we choose presidential electors. Of course, we all know we we vote for them. Um, the the argument turns, guys, on the idea that where these two textual provisions of the Constitution use the word legislature, they mean legislature to the exclusion of anyone else in the state government system. Um, and so legislature, not just first, but legislature conclusively, mm. meaning that if the legislature says we're allowed to do this when it comes to federal congressional districts, when it comes to voting in federal elections, if the state Supreme Court comes back and says, no, our state constitution says you can't, tough noogies, um, the legislature wins. Um, and the reason why this is such a big deal is because this theory would so significantly restructure the relationships between state legislatures and state Supreme Courts, guys, not just in North Carolina, but you know here in Texas um, and in all of the other 48 states. And this is why I think folks like me are so focused on and, and moderately obsessed with this case. Well, let me ask you this. You know, a, a lot of people have been talking about just whether this does pose an existential threat to our democracy. Is that overstating it at all, Professor? So, Jason, I mean, in the short term, yes, um, right, that, that, that you know, the day after, uh, in a world in which the Supreme Court rules for the challengers here, we will still be a democracy the day after that decision and the week after that decision. The problem is not this case itself. I mean, as Jason says, this is about the congressional district maps in North Carolina. The problem is the next case. And so, right, imagine in a future presidential election where, let's say, uh, the voters of Arizona um, vote in 2024 to reelect President Biden, but the Republican-controlled state legislature says, no, we actually think that was a mistake. We think that was fraudulent. We choose to seat electors for the Republican nominee. Um, and the state Supreme Court comes back and says, you can't do that, right? Well, if this theory is embraced by a majority of the U.S. Supreme Court, the decision by the state Supreme Court in that case would be irrelevant. So the concern, Jason, is not that democracy is sort of hanging in the balance based on this decision. It's that it would empower state legislatures in future presidential elections to act in ways that are overtly anti-democratic. And, and Professor, th th this case is called Moore versus Harper, as Jason mentioned. It was heard on December the 7th. And, and here's what kind of struck me as looking into this thing. For, I think, more than a century now, the Supreme Courts, the different justices over the, over the decades have rejected uh, bringing this back up. It, how significant is it that this court said, OK, we want to hear this? It, it's a huge deal. I mean, so, you know, we know, Jason, from... Um, separate opinions that the justices have written in emergency applications over the last couple of years, especially during the 2020 cycle, that there are at least four justices who are interested in the theory. There might even be five. Um, so, you know, and, and to be clear, they didn't have to take this case. There was no split among lower courts. There was no lower court that embraced the theory. And so this didn't necessarily meet the classic criteria for when the U.S. Supreme Court intervened. That's why folks like me you know, sort of rang alarm bells when they took this case, because it said, right, in sort of big, bright, flashing letters, actually, we're interested in this theory. Um, and part of what's, I think, so remarkable about this is this starts 
from a very the, the interest in the theory starts from a very practical place, which is imagine you have a state supreme court running amok. Um, right. Imagine a state Supreme Court just keeps striking down what the legislature is doing. Guys on, let's say, increasingly dubious, right, state law grounds. And so the 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 first time this theory is ever really embraced is by then Chief Justice Rehnquist in 2000 in Bush versus Gore, which is exactly what the conservatives thought the Florida Supreme Court was doing. Right, that the Democratic majority on the Florida Supreme Court was bending over backwards to accommodate Al Gore and to hurt Governor Bush, right? Um, the problem with this whole setup is like, what makes a state Supreme Court's interpretation of its own law dubious, um, right? If they're the authoritative interpreter of their state's law, isn't it the case that whatever they say goes and that it's not the U.S. Supreme Court's job to second guess how the state Supreme Court interprets its own law? That's the that's the fundamental tension here. And that's why this would be such a break from prior practice and tradition. Going back to what you just said a few minutes ago about whether this is an existential threat to democracy, uh, Professor, um, am I hearing you right there that, you know, Immediately, maybe not, even if the Supreme Court embraces this, but, you know, come the next presidential election, it very well could be the the end of democracy if indeed you have even one state uh, that is essentially throwing out the will of the people and saying, no, we as a legislature have decided that we think that there was fraud, uh, even if we can't prove it, and we're going to choose these electors to go forward and it could change the outcome of the presidential election. That effectively is the end of democracy. I mean, that's the concern. Now, now, Jason, I mean, that's the extreme scenario. And, you know, a lot of things would have to happen to get us there, right? You'd have to have that state being the tipping point state, right? right. You'd have to have um, a Republican or a, a legislature of a par- controlled by a party different from the party that controls the state Supreme Court. We actually have fewer of those now than at any point in the last 50 years where you have divides between the state legislature and the state Supreme Court. So, you know, the concern, though, is... In that scenario, if the Supreme Court says, when Article 2, Section 1 says the legislature, it means the legislature and nobody else, Mm -hmm. what would actually be wrong, right? What would would be the legal objection to the state legislature in that hypothetical taking that step, right? The answer can't be state constitutional law because that's what the independent state legislature doctrine gets rid of. And I don't know that there's anything in federal law, right, that would bar a state legislature from doing that. And I think that's why, you know, there are folks out there who are worried not about what would happen overnight if the Supreme Court embraces this theory, but about what could happen in a scary future case. Mm. Any idea which way the the current justices might go on this? We know it's a conservative majority and and there are some like Kavanaugh and and, and Thomas and others who have expressed interest in this. Yeah, you know, it was a fascinating argument, guys. one of the things about this term is that the arguments have actually gotten a little more, uh, how do I say, predictable based on the, the justices. But this one wasn't um, like I, because what one of the things that happened in this case is there was this remarkable flood of friend of the court briefs mm-hmm. that were not necessarily from the people you'd expect. Mm-hmm. Um, Explain what that is, though, first, because people might not know what friend of the court means when they follow an amicus brief. Yeah. So the you know, usually the the main people who brief a case in the Supreme Court are the parties, right? The plaintiffs and the defendants um, here, right? The challengers in the state of North Carolina. In the Supreme Court, it's common to have lots of so-called friend of the court briefs, briefs by people who are not 
parties to the case, but who have some interest in the case. So it might be a group of law professors. Um, if it's a case about antitrust, it might be antitrust experts. If it's a case about, um, you know, environmental law, like, you know, ex experts in the science. And they can um, weigh in on either side of the issue. Either side or neither, right? There's actually, there's there's something called the brief and support of neither party. And what's mm -hmm. fascinating about the Moore versus Harper case is we saw a whole bunch of very prominent conservatives um, file amicus briefs supporting the state, right? And sort of against the independent state legislature theory. Um, we saw guys, the first time I've ever seen this in amicus brief, a friend of the court brief, signed by the chief justices of all 50 states. Um, basically saying, wow. hey, hey, Supreme Court, let us do our jobs. Mm. Um, that's pretty remarkable. So so my sense of the argument is that there are probably three votes, right, for an aggressive th version of this theory. Um, Justices Thomas Alito and Gorsuch, if I had to you know, bet, there are clearly three votes to not embrace any of this. Um, Justices uh, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Jackson. Mm. And, and I think we've got the Chief Justice and Robert and Kavanaugh and Barrett in the middle. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, guys, the question is, is there some kind of intermediate version of the theory? Mm -hmm. um, so one idea that was floated at the argument was that um, in a case in which a state Supreme Court truly is behaving badly, right, the answer is not to just disempower them categorically. The answer is to say there are other federal constitutional limits, like due process or equal protection, which was the ultimate problem in Bush versus Gore, yeah. right? Um, if that line is able to persuade, say, two of those three justices in the middle, then I think North Carolina wins this case. Hmm. Um, because it's hard to figure out once you accept any version of the legislature means legislature and only legislature, where you stop. Uh, let me ask this. Uh, what would be the argument that you would make? Uh, because, you know, you mentioned these briefs that have been filed. Um, well, first of all, do you think that that has an impact uh, as somebody who has studied the court for a very long time? Does it have an impact when you have these heavyweight conservatives from across the country and these 50 uh, chief justices of state Supreme Courts weighing in? Do you think that really sways the justices on the Supreme Court? I do. I mean, they might they might, you know, and, and frankly, I, I think they would even say, you know, uh, so the question, I guess, is what what sway means. I, I think it has an impact. I mean, I think these briefs get read, um, especially when it's a wrong foot brief. Right. So conservatives, for example, or a sort of, you know, strange bedfellow brief, which is like what the 50 state Supreme Court justice brief is. I mean, mm -hmm. when Chief Justice Hecht and the Chief Justice of California are agreeing with each other, that should tell <laughs> people something. Mm -hmm. Um so, so I, I think the briefs do have an impact, not necessarily because the analysis in them is persuasive, but because of the signaling function that they that they serve. And so, yeah. right. So, so here you have you have these prominent conservative lawyers, you have these Republican state chief justices, right, signaling to the Supreme Court that they think this is a really bad idea. I don't think that will impact all the justices, but I think anyone who says it has no impact really isn't telling the truth. Now, let's say that you're you're you know, trying to talk to someone here in this state, a prominent uh, Republican, let's say, because uh, this has been uh, a theory that has been pushed by a lot of prominent Republicans. Uh, let's say that you're trying to dissuade them and, and mm -hmm. warn them about what this could mean for Texas uh, down the road. Like maybe they think it's a good idea now. What what would you tell them to say, here's why you might not like this 10 years from now? Y'all don't go anywhere. Yolitics will be right back. 
All right, quick pause in Yolitics here, guys. We want to uh, mention our friends at a podcast called The Purple Principle. It's a nonpartisan, independent-minded po politics show and is hosted by a lifelong independent. Not a lot of those, Wheeler. His mm -hmm. name is Robert Pease. You know, Wheeler and I were guests on his program back in March when they launched their Texas miniseries, which also included the authors Lawrence Wright and Stephen Harrigan. Yeah, it was a great conversation uh, we were able to have about you know, national polarization. It's happening everywhere. And the effect that has on the Texas identity. Wow. Uh, we'd also recommend their episode, by the way, on the purpleness of Georgia yeah. these days, as we've been seeing, as well as the first ever statewide ranked choice election in Alaska last month, which could be a template for moderating politics throughout the lower 48. It is an interesting experiment to say the least. We've talked a lot about that here on Yolitics as well too, ranked choice and see what happens with that. But a lot of the focus of the Purple Principle is on the need for bipartisanship in our democracy, including the recent episode on the U.S. Senate and on amplifying more moderate, less partisan voices that are rarely heard on social media and on cable news. Yeah, in fact, they've got an upcoming episode. Uh, their upcoming season finale brings back the pragmatic former Texas Congress Congressman Will Hurd. Uh, so you definitely want to check that out. All you have to do is look up the Purple Principle in your podcast app, or you can go to purpleprinciple.com. And now back to Yolitics. Yeah, I mean, I think it's especially uh, uh, salient guys in states that elect their Supreme Court justices, as we do here in Texas, to say, what are you really worried about? Um, right. So in a state where the justices are elected, I think the argument is, you know, why do we need to rewrite the state constitution? What is the concern that elected justices are all of a sudden going to go out on a crazy detour uh, that's that's different from the elected legislature? Indeed, guys, there are circumstances where I would say the Texas Supreme Court is actually more representative of the state than the gerrymandered state legislature is. Um, Right. I mean, well, because the Supreme Court's not gerrymandered. All nine of those seats are filled on a statewide basis. It's true. Um, right. So in a state like Texas, I would say, why are you afraid of the Supreme Court? Um, and if the, the messier thing is what about in states that are sort of more divided, um, right, where there is a bit of a divide between the state Supreme Court state legislature? I guess I think there the argument is, you know, state constitutional law is not something we want the U.S. Supreme Court to all of a sudden have the power to get into. Because if the U.S. Supreme Court is now in a position to rewrite state constitutional law when it comes to this issue, what's next? Um, and indeed, I mean, if we go back to sort of first principles, one of the most, you know, sort of widely shared objections to the Constitution at the time of ratification was that it took too much power away from state governments. Uh, this is a pretty massive power grab, right, by the Supreme Court in the name of state legislatures, but in a way that would rewrite state constitutions in ways that would have, I think, far-reaching effects beyond elections. And just to kind of lay this out for, for our listeners here, too, if this were to, you know, be approved by the, the independent state legislature theory were to be approved by a majority of justices, this would, wouldn't this clog up federal courts uh, since state courts would be irrelevant? Uh, and, and secondly, if it happened also, um, how would it get changed back through Congress? So I think there are two things. One, to your first question, Jason, yes. Um, it would put all this litigation into federal court about fighting over what did the legislature actually say. And like, you know, the, without regard to the sort of state Supreme Court's interpretation of the legislation, now it would just be the legislature that is the, the be all end all. Um, two, so there are, there actually is a, at least, 
constitutionally easy fix if the Supreme Court does this, although the politics might get in the way. So Article 1, Section 4 says the legislature shall fix the time, place, and manner, except that Congress right, can provide its own rules other than the place of choosing senators, which is an anachronistic thing that no one cares about anymore. Mm -hmm. um, Congress could come back right, and pass uniform national legislation that basically gets rid of the independent state legislature doctrine that takes over regulation of congressional and presidential elections. That's clearly within Congress's constitutional authority. It's just that, guys, for all of our history, Congress has left that to the states. Um, and it's been sort of it's been understood that even federal elections are a matter to be administered and regulated by the individual states as such. So it would be a massive transfer of authority either to the federal courts if Congress doesn't react. Right. Or to the federal political branches, if Congress does react either way, it's taking power away from the states. And, and and I wonder how slim the chances are that Congress would act here, considering that we're going to be having a divided Congress. Well, and therein lies the rub, right, which is, you know, it's one thing to say Congress could do this. It's another thing to say Congress would do this. Um, hard to imagine that the next Congress is going to do much of anything, um, given the Republican control of the House and the Democratic control of the Senate. But maybe in a couple of years, if the Supreme Court really does go this way. I mean, one of the things that I think the amicus briefs help to reflect is that this issue does not neatly separate everyone into parties. There are plenty of conservatives and Republicans who are actually wary of the independent state legislature doctrine. So, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic that that's going to win the day in the Supreme Court, but you never know until you see the decision. Mm. And, uh, and last question I have, Steve, to, to, to zoom out on this thing, um, there, we talked early on about whether this might be an activist court. Uh, we saw the Dobbs decision. Um, where do you think this case, Moore versus Harper, the independent state legislature theory, where does this rank in the politics of the Supreme Court? Oh, man. Um, I think the fact that the court took this case at all, Jason, is a pretty aggressive and pretty activist step by the court. But I think they can walk away from the cliff, right? I mean, I think that the, the ultimate decision could actually be pretty modest um, compared to, say, some of the other stuff I think the court's going to do this term, where I think when we, you know, when we catch up in the spring and the summer, we're going to say, whoa, what happened there? So I think this, that we're even at this point is pretty activist on the court's part. But I actually think this might be the rare example for this court of the justices coming to the ledge, looking over the cliff hmm. and not necessarily liking what they see. Is there a lot of irony there, though, if indeed the, the Supreme Court does uh, validate this independent state legislature theory? Uh, is there an irony there that this pillar of checks and balances that is the Supreme Court would effectively be getting rid of the possibility of checks and balances at the state level? I mean, so there's an iron there's an irony in that respect. And I would add there's a historical irony, which is that this is a court that has defended much of its activism on grounds of fidelity to originalism, to historical practice and understanding. And the notion that the founders would have ratified a constitution that took the power to interpret state law away from state Supreme Courts um, in any case relating to a federal election, guys, and that no one noticed and no one said anything and no one objected 
um, really, I think, turns originalism on its head. So, you know, it's it's this case is awash in ironies. I think the sort of foremost of them being that for the Supreme Court to do what at least some of the conservatives wanted to do and embrace this theory, it would actually have to engage in the very kind of methodological approach that the conservatives have decried for decades. Mm. Professor Vladek, uh, we're going to have to let you go before your bat phone there rings. Uh, some of your law students are taking their finals right now, right? Uh, my first year civil procedure students, uh, I've got about another hour and nine minutes before they come looking for me. So <laughs> you know, if you don't hear from me again, guys, it's been real. Or that phone could ring any moment now if there is a problem. But, 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 but before I let you go, though, speaking of those students, how closely do you watch something like this in class? What a time to be a constitutional law professor and, for that matter, a law student uh, to be able to watch a case like this and, and try to follow it. Yeah, I mean, you know, you, it's a it's always a tricky question, you know, pedagogically about how much you invest your students in live controversies. Um, mm -hmm. On the one hand, you want them to see what's real and what's interesting about the more esoteric stuff we're doing. On the other hand, you know, you got enough to do. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and and when you're not sure which way the sort of the, the river's going to run going forward, you know, you may have to be a little cautious about how much time you invest in a case that might go one way, might go the other way, it might actually go nowhere. So, you know, it's... It, it's always a challenge. I think it's a unique challenge in constitutional law where it feels like every year the Supreme Court is reinventing half of the doctrine. Mm -hmm. um, but if nothing else, it keeps our classes interesting. I'll mm -hmm. say this, man. You're you're a great teacher. You've uh, you taught us a lot. So thanks for always taking our call. No, guys, it's always great to be with you. Yeah, yeah you definitely teach us. I think that's the first time in the couple of years uh, that this podcast has been in existence that we've had the word pedagogically on here. So that right there, 50 cent <laughs> word. Next time we'll go for orthogonal. <laughs> I think you just did it in this one. That's a bonus. <laughs> Thank you so much, Professor Vladek. Thanks, guys. See ya. Take care. Man, that was some serious vocabulary there at the end. No one has ever used words like that. I mean, he's talking. He's talking <laughs> Not on this podcast. <laughs> way over our heads on some of this stuff here. I mean, I, I barely graduated college. I barely graduated high school, much yeah. less college. And here he is. You know, really going above and beyond. Well, but as you said, though, this guy always makes us smarter when he's on, uh, you know, vocabulary wise, but also w with regard to the law. Because, again, you know, you hear some of these things that the Supreme Court is looking at and chewing on and you think, oh, do I really care about that? I don't really know if I, you know, need to devote some space in my brain to that. But he breaks it down in such a way. Sorry to use that term because I know no, you hate that. Very cliche. Uh, he breaks it down in such a way, though, to where you, you, you understand like, oh, OK, that is significant. Now, we started this podcast talking about how the attorney general here in Texas, Ken Paxton, filed one of those briefs that we were talking about with the Supreme Court, basically weighing in and saying, hey, here's my opinion on this. And he's for the independent state legislative uh, legislature theory. Uh, interesting thing, though, is is that you heard uh, Professor Vladek there referring to all 50 chief justices yeah. uh, from the state Supreme Courts weighing in on this as well. And now, you know, from my understanding here, this was one of those neutral ones he was talking about. They didn't weigh in on the side of you know one person's side or the other person's side there. They came in neutrally and said, here's what we think about this. Um, but you know, among those in there, of course, was the Texas State Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice. Uh, and the New York Times uh, had an article with him recently where he talked about this. And you know, he, he didn't mince words here. He says, this is the biggest federal uh, federalism issue in a long time, maybe ever. This uh, is the Republican 
yeah. chief justice of the Texas Supreme Court. Nathan yeah. Heck, right? Yeah, uh, as reported by the New York Times. Uh, and, and basically, he goes on in the article to say, you know, sort of careful what you wish for with this, because if you're the party in power in the legislature, which oh. Republicans are sure. right now and have been for a long time here in Texas, if you're the party in power, you might want this and say, hey, you know, we can make the rules. But he sort of cautions in here, one day you might not be the party in power anymore, and the other side will get to be the ones making all of the rules that can't be checked by the and state And you have courts. to live by the rules that, that you, uh, you know, helped get passed, essentially. Right. Yeah. So double-edged sword, perhaps. Th this will get ruled on uh, at the end of the Supreme Court term, and uh, likely in June or so, uh, when the Supreme Court wraps things up. Here's the thing to remember, though. This could impact the 2024 presidential election. Of course it could. We're less than two years out from that. It's hard to believe. But, you know, brand new year, you're going to see candidates announced all across the country, uh, mainly on the right. You'll see some on the left announced as well, too. But that's where you're going to see the impact of this if the Supreme Court decides to move ahead with it. Yeah, some people have uh, stopped short of talking about how this could affect the electoral count and all of that stuff. And they're just arguing the case is at sort of a lower level than that. But there are people who say that, hey, this could have ramifications yeah. beyond, you know, what you're considering right now. This could open some floodgates and have, you know, some unintended consequences or, you know, some some consequences that just haven't really been thought out uh, completely yet. So it's and something to watch with Professor Vladek saying when you have the the Texas Supreme Court justice agreeing with the California Supreme Court justice. Some odd bedfellows. Some odd bedfellows. There, there's something going on there if you have all these legal minds who are uh, opposed to this yeah. as they filed in the amicus briefs. Um, next week, we have a Christmas present for you. Did, you did, have did one you, for me, I'm did sure. Did you charge my card for we this, We have too? one for the listeners as well. <laughs> I, I'm going to. Everybody gets a present on my card. I haven't tabbed out yet. This is like a, a regular <laughs> Oprah. Check under your seat right now. See what's under the seat right now. <laughs> Wheeler has a mouthful of pizza. He's like, burnt, I do. You know, I've noticed that, through all this. You know, I've noticed that you don't eat when we do podcasts, I'm, I, which I, is probably well, good practice. It probably is. Um, but I just can't stop because this has jalapenos on it. It's too good. He's on his third pint. He's burning through this pizza right here. So. <laughs> or it's burning through me. These well, jalapenos. <laughs> uh, so listen, everybody. Thanks for uh, listening. Do tune in next week for this gift that yeah. uh, Whiteley is talking about. It's a good one. It's a good one, my friend. And the easiest way, by the way, to tune in, uh, if you're not a big podcast listener and you're just finding us each time, is hit that subscribe button on there uh, because that matters. It, it, you'll get the episodes as they drop, which include... Some you know sometimes we have emergency episodes that we haven't planned uh, because we're terrible at planning and we, we don't plan happen. most of this stuff. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> you know subscribe on there, tell your friends about it, tell your family about it. We're gonna have some trivia uh, on the next one as well, uh, talking oh, about really? yeah who's listening to this podcast. Oh, the, the trivia is like for us, or are we going to share some trivia? It's probably with the for listeners? you because I doubt you know this information, but I, I'm going to I'm going to quiz you. I know if it's the who's listening, that that's pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah. That's we'll, coming up next time. We'll share that. Before we let you go, a quick shout-out again to Westlake Brewing Company in Deep Ellum, Texas. Ellum, which is Elm mm -hmm. Street, which is where this place is, over on the east side of the skyline. They're always kind having us here, yeah. and we always appreciate the hospitality, and I know you love the pizza. And we always appreciate you listening. Thanks, and uh, we'll do it again next week.